Well, over the last uh, number of weeks, we've been working through this idea of passion. And if you remember when we began, we talked about the importance to set a high goal because we serve a mighty God and to aim high in life. Then we talked about the importance of keeping our hearts clean. And then we followed that up with the idea of keeping our minds clear. And then a reminder that we've been saved and been given a spiritual gift, at least one or two, at least one, if not more, where we can uh, serve God and find our purpose in life and giving us a passion that way. And we talked about the idea of that sin that besets us and how we need to be aware of what that is so that we can keep ourselves on the straight and narrow and not get ourselves off track. And then last week we talked about the importance of relating to one another in a healthy way because if we don't, our passion for the Lord can be damaged for sure. Today I want to talk with you about the idea of a holy balance, of a balanced life. And I can think of no better example in life of one who lived a balanced life than Jesus himself. Uh, in John chapter 11, we have an extended look at a relationship between Jesus and three siblings, Mary, Martha, uh, and Lazarus, Lazarus, who lived, Lazarus, who lived at Bethany. Bethany's just over the, across the valley and over the hill from Jerusalem, just east of town, right before you head out into the desert. And their home was a place that Jesus and his disciples would frequent when they were in Jerusalem, uh, and they had a close relationship. And we're close to the end of Jesus' time on earth when this particular encounter happens, and I believe it reveals to us six things about a balanced life. The first one is, is simply this. We're all going to experience trials. We're all going to have difficulties. We're all going to have hardships. Look at verse 1 to 3. You think, well, Jesus didn't have hardships. Sure he did. Look at verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now we're not told exactly where Jesus is when he hears the news. We don't know where he is exactly. We do can kind of deduce he's not in Judea proper. He's not in the region right around Jerusalem. He might have been down at Jericho. He might have been up with the Samaritans. One scholar I read this week said he might have been across the Jordan River uh, east into an adjacent region that was governed by the same uh, leader for Jerusalem, but it's clear Jesus is avoiding the Judean scene because of some of the tensions, especially what you read in chapter 10. And back in that day, you didn't send Jesus a text and say, hey, we need you to come over here. Couldn't call him. Apparently, the, the sisters knew where he was headed, at least the general directions. They sent word through travelers, tell Jesus to come, tell Jesus to come back to us so we could he could maybe do something. And in there, into this season of life that Jesus, I believe, was a very difficult season, he finds, gets word that a close friend of his, someone he cares for, one who he loves, is ill. You think, man, Jesus had hardships? Yes. So do we. We all experience trials. It's just part of a balanced life. In fact, I'm convinced that God uses the hardships in our lives to bring about something great in our life if we'll let him. It's just part and parcel of the human experience. For while we can be living our life, can't we, seemingly with everything going great, no problem in the world, no care in the world, and all of a sudden one phone call, isn't it, changes the direction of our lives. We hear the word that someone close to us has passed away. We hear the word that someone is ill. We hear the word that someone has died. And life changes in a moment. 
Peter summarized it this way. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter recognized the reality that we all are going to face hardships. We're all going to face fiery trials. We're all going to face hardship from time to time. It's simply part of, I believe, a balanced life. And because it's in these trials, we discover what we're really made of, don't we? And we discover how best to respond. So first of all, the first step is this. We experience trial. Second, Jesus illustrates for us this point, that we, he believes in God's sovereignty. Now, that's a word we don't use a lot, the, the word sovereignty. But I want you to see this. Look at verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he heard the news that Lazarus was ill. He said, this illness doesn't lead to death. If you know the story, you're kind of going, really? Yeah. It doesn't lead to death. It is for the what? The glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What he's doing is kind of interesting here. He gives us a path to follow. See, these moments, even the hard moments, are part of God's sovereign plan. So when hardship and trial and and difficulty comes, often what do we do? We run to God and say, God, get me out of this. God, take it away from me. Take them out. Could you do that? God, that would be even better if you just take them out, the ones that are being the, the difficult ones. We ask him to remove that. But what if these hardships are part of God's plan? You're going, what? What if these difficulties are part of God's bigger plan? What if in his sovereignty he's using even ugliness and hardship to bring about something great in his kingdom? You know, our North American experience of Christianity is is, is pretty insulated from hardship, if we're really honest. Uh, We live in a country where at least it's still currently acceptable to be a follower of Jesus and to be public about it. No one is going to take you and, and, and really seriously harm you. They may make fun of you a little bit. That's, you know, that's minor compared to most parts of the world. But in most parts of the world, people who identify as following Jesus, they, they face situations that are much more difficult. They, they find themselves in a place where they could lose their job because of their relationship with God or lose their health. They could be attacked or they could even lose their life because they follow Jesus. We've got it fairly easy still. But notice Jesus' firm belief as he hears the news that Lazarus is ill. Look at the verse again. This illness doesn't lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He see, you see, he firmly believed Lazarus' illness had a purpose. You're going, wow. I don't well, look at illness as having a purpose. It, it may very well have a purpose. And in this situation, it was the purpose that God would be glorified. Paul himself addressed the issue when he said this, no, not only that, but we what? We, get this, rejoice in our sufferings. When was the last time you were rejoicing in your sufferings? You know me. Paul says, church at Rome, rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Jesus revealed a belief that God was at work in this moment, bringing about not just the good, listen, but the great. God had something bigger in plan and bigger in store for this moment than they could even see. So we need to learn to trust God. That even when things become difficult, even when hardships come in our life, he is at work in the situation to bring about something better. And choosing to see what comes through the lens of God at work We live a balanced life. So a balanced life experiences trials. It 
It believes in God's sovereignty. And it's also sensitive to God's timing. You know, in the, the, in the scriptures, there's a lot of interesting little stories that kind of make you scratch your head and go, huh? What? Look at verse 5 and 6. This is one of those. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, look what he does. Scratch your head with me. Here we go. You ready? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, most of us, if we had received word that our dear friend Lazarus was ill and possibly could die, most of us would do what? We'd drop everything we had in life. We'd hop in the car, the truck, and go what? Go run over to see him, to check on him. We'd at least pick up the phone and call him, right? They couldn't do any of that. They, we, would, they, we would go and see what's going on. We'd drop our responsibilities. We'd, we'd go to, to their side. we want to be with them. I don't know about you, but when I've gotten word that a close family member is ill, I often do what? Exactly the opposite of what Jesus did. I'm going to stay two more days, and then I'll go. No. We get on the road, right? We make our way to him, but not Jesus. Why? Why did he do that? I, I think it has to do with understanding and believing and trusting in God's timing. But let me ask you this. What or who was leading Jesus in this moment? Was he listening to his flesh or was he listening to the Spirit? You go, but Patrick, that's Jesus. It's easy. Was he listening to what he wanted to do or what God wanted him to do? You go, well, he is God. How could he not do it right? I want you to understand, my friends, that you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, guiding us and leading us and directing us. And if we're listening to him, we will do what he wants us to do in the right time. What Jesus does here is models a better way to live. If you go back to John chapter 5, you hear these strange words. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man, the Son, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Can I tell you something? For most of us, that's a foreign concept. Most of us live our lives with this thought. What do I want to do? What's best for me? What's on my agenda? What's on my plan? What's my direction? What is my thought? Jesus said, none of that matters. What I want to be is I want to be where the Father is. I want to do what the Father's doing. I only do what I see Him doing and work in the way He does. I think this could be a clue to why so many of our lives are out of balance. Because we do what we want to do instead of doing the will of God. One pastor said this, Why ask God for His will if you've already made up your mind what you're going to do? We'll go to God and say, God, I want your will on this. But really, we've already decided what we're going to do. And really what we want is God to confirm our plan. And if he says through his spirit or through the spirit or through his word or through trusted friends, no, that's not the right direction, most of us will say, but I've already decided. Discovering a balanced life says this, we go to the source who can bring balance. We go to the source who can bring our lives into in, into a situation where it makes sense. It, 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 but instead we often rely on everything else. Jesus didn't run to Lazarus immediately because God had certain things for him to do where he was. And his timing was always right. So a balanced life experiences trials. It believes in God's sovereignty. It's sensitive to God's timing. Fourth, it values 
Faith steps. Now, as I read this passage again, and, I, and this is, of course, a very familiar story. We usually focus on the end because that's where the really amazing stuff happens. You know, Lazarus comes out from the dead. They unwrap him and all that stuff. We're not looking at that today. We're looking at the setup for that story. Jesus does something. He says something here. We kind of go, huh? So then after this, so after a couple of days, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. Y'all, y'all with me? Let's go. That's a pretty cool idea, isn't it? I thought we should have gone two days ago. We should have gone already. We should already be there. We should be taking care. Things were tough in Judea. He had already been attacked by the Sadducees, the Pharisees. So his disciples' response was very interesting. They said, uh, Rabbi, um, Rabbi, uh, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Are you serious? Uh, by the way, in their minds, I don't think they, they didn't verbalize this, but I'm sure they thought it because I guarantee you they think like we think because they're humans. Their thought would have been, if we go with you, we might get stoned too. Why do you want to go back there? Make no mistake, followers of Jesus often don't look at the greater purposes of God. Instead, focus on the personal impact. Now, we don't know why Jesus delayed, but we do know the moment came when the time was right. And I think it was the leading of God, really, in this moment that says it's now time to go to Judea again, to go back to where he was. And that revelation elicited a very strong response from his disciples to which Jesus responds with a somewhat cryptic mini-sermon. Did you see it? Verse 9. Jesus answered, um, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. On a surface level, let's just say it together, duh. If it's dark, it's hard to walk. If it's light, it's easy to walk, right? And you've gotten up in the middle of the night and ran into a piece of furniture and your toe reminded you how enjoyable that's not. Are with me? Should have turned on a light. But why would Jesus say, well, it's easier to walk in the day than in the night? That's not exactly what he's saying. He's got a deeper meaning here. He's talking not about walking in this world. He's talking about our spiritual walk. He's talking about, he's, he's talking to guys who followed Jesus now for three years. He's saying, don't you get it? You ought to be walking with a spiritual light, not in the darkness that was the life before your relationship with God. His followers express serious doubt. They're revealing this, a lack of faith. Can, you, can, can any of you relate to that? <laughs> I do. Remember what Jesus said? We're supposed to walk by faith, not by sight. Actually, uh, Paul said that in Corinthians. We walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus himself was walking by faith, not by sight. His followers needed to walk by faith, not by sight. They needed to truly value the faith steps that were being presented to them, to say be faithful to God, to keep going. They needed to listen to the voice of the master instead of the voice of themselves or the voice of those around them or the circumstances in life. They needed to not look at all the ugly but say, instead, I want to look to God because he's the one that I want to follow. So balanced life is found as we walk by faith, not by sight. 
Oh, this life experiences trials. It believes in God's sovereignty. It's sensitive to God's timing. It values faith steps. It also embraces what I'm calling the holy inevitable. That's not W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy inevitable. It's holy inevitable. Look at the scriptures. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples thought to themselves, Good, he's asleep. What's one of the best things you can do when you're really sick? Sleep, right? Doctors will say, get some rest. Sleep for a while. Let let the body heal itself. Let it work through the situation, the circumstances. And so the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to recover. Yay! Now Jesus had spoken of his death then. But they thought he meant he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has we go to the funeral, right? That must have been their thought. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. The disciples are called by Jesus to go forward to what I'm calling the holy inevitable. He tells them that their friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. They're going to go wake him. At first blush, sounds like a good deal, but they miss it. Lazarus was dead. And what Jesus was going to do is go Raise them from the dead. Now, at this point in their lives, they've been following him for, oh, about three years. They must have seen some amazing miracles in that time. Wouldn't you agree? If you read the New Testament, you see all these amazing things. He fed 5,000 with just a few loaves and fishes. He walked on water. He's done this amazing stuff, right? And yet they still struggle to live a balanced life that God had for them. They, like us, leaned too hard in what they could see, what they could touch, what they could hear. They were still walking in the dark, not the light. And God was going to use this next encounter to take his disciples to the next level. Can I tell you something? They weren't going to arrive at their completion. They were just going to what? Go to the next level. Because he said, I'm going to show you what the Messiah can do, what the Son of God can do, how he can defeat death itself. Had they gone earlier, what they would have missed was this, the resurrection of Lazarus. They would have never grasped the power that God has in that moment. They would have missed what I call the holy inevitable. You know, over in Matthew, there's a really cool story that Jesus tells about people building their houses on different foundations some on the rock, some on sand, those kind of things. And at the end of the story, Jesus says this, everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. When we follow Jesus, we find our lives being built not on sand, not on on failing foundations, but on the foundation of God. And we experience these holy, inevitable moments where God inspires us to know that he's God and that he can do the things he needs to. And he can accomplish what he wants to accomplish. I can share with you story after story of times I've seen God work in ways that I go, that had to be God. I'm sure you can too. You go, there was no way that was going to be resolved, but it was God. So a balanced life experiences trials, believes in God's sovereignty, is sensitive to his timing, values faith steps, and experiences the 
the holy inevitable. And then there's a little verse in here that I find comfort in for a couple of reasons. One, it reminds me that the scriptures are full of all kinds of people who failed. What about you? I find comfort in that. What step number six is, is a choice to ignore the negativity around us. I think there's as much negativity now as there was when I was a kid. We just hear it more. It's everywhere, isn't it? Look at verse 16. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Oh, me, Wilbur. You with me? We're all going to die. Exactly. Okay, it's exactly what he said. Let us also go that we may die with him. Well, that's a that's a word of encouragement. If I ever saw one, isn't it? Here's the word for you today. Let's go with Jesus so we can die. Let's go back to Judea so we can get stoned. You want to? Let's go. Sounds like fun. No, it doesn't, does it? Sounds like work. Sounds hard. Here's a thought we need to adopt, though. When we're following the leading of Jesus in a balanced life, we're going to make a choice that says this. I'm going to ignore the negativity around me. I'm going to ignore the naysayers. I'm going to ignore those who want to tear me down. I'm going to ignore those who say everything's bad. I find verse 16 to be a fascinating inclusion in the Word of God because what we have here is Thomas being Thomas. He's often called Doubting Thomas. You know why? Right there's your evidence, okay? Verse 16, chapter 11 of John. It's all bad. It's all bad. You know, he's the person, we all know him, don't we? If you don't know him, it may be that you're the one. Anyway, we all know these people, don't we? They're all around us that go, oh, oh, it's bad, it's bad, you know. Oh, it's terrible. This is the person, if you give them a million dollars, they'd complain because you didn't give them two million. What? This is the person who can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory every time because it's all bad. It's all bad. You know, it's, it's difficult to grasp for me that Jesus had one of these guys in his inner circle. And, and do you know who chose those guys? <clears throat> Jesus did. Wow. But here he is saying with resignation, let us go that we may die with him. By the way, this is not the guy you call when you're down, right? Man, I've had a tough week. It's not been going well. This broke. That went bad. The wife kicked me out of the door. The cat scratched me. I, you know, and the guy says to you, well, it could be worse. Let me tell you how. You're going, no, I don't want to hear the worst. You with me? This is the guy. But did you see Jesus' response to his negativity? Did you see it? Did you see it? It's not there. Now, I, 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 I'm going to give you... A, a step up here on me. I'm going to argue, argue from silence, which is always fraught with potential potholes, okay? But Jesus didn't say anything when Thomas said that. Because I think if Jesus had taken the time to explain it to Thomas, Thomas would have just been more convinced. He goes, okay, let's go and die really bad now. Is what would have been his response then. It wasn't going to go well for Thomas no matter what. And I think there's instruction for us here that we as we live a balanced life, is that we don't have to respond to every negative statement in life. 
Sometimes the negativity, you just have to, as I say it, rise above and move beyond it. Because sometimes the best answer for a balanced life is silence. Let me remind you what the Proverbs say in chapter 17, verse 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. There may not be a thought one behind the eyes, but if you keep your mouth shut, nobody will know. And there's sometimes there's no reason to respond to the negativity all around you. As I like to phrase it, to rise above. Jesus was in tune with the Father, resulting in what we might think are strange choices. Yet his choices were exactly what God had for him to live a balanced life that brought about redemption for you and me. May we emulate Jesus. Let me tell you something. If you're going to emulate Jesus, you've got to have a relationship with him. You've got to know him. You have to come to a place where you trust him. Have you done that? If you haven't, it's a simple step of faith that says, Jesus, I trust you my whole life. And I want to give you control. And I want to listen to your voice. I want to listen to your leading. I want to listen to your purpose. So we're going to give you a moment to respond to God if you need to, or if you're called to feel called to do that today. I'd love to pray with you here at the front. Maybe you need to uh, just stay seated in a moment when we stand to sing and just pray. Or maybe you need to come to an altar. We want to give you that opportunity here in these next few moments. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you work through the lives of people like us. You want us to find a balance in life, to deal with the hardships, to rise above the negativity, and to listen to your voice each step of the way. I pray, God, as we respond to you, as you lead us, that you'd show us what we need to do in response to your word. We pray your blessing in these few moments. In Jesus' name.